Oh, Leah, I knew you were the right person for music for this Sunday. In fact, I'm a little bit tempted to just ask Leah to do the opening song on repeat for the next 20 minutes, and then I'll be good. (laughs) I'm set. (laughs) I want to welcome folks who are joining us on Facebook this morning. We are glad to have you with us, as we are glad to have all of you here live and in the flesh. So Valentine's Day, you may have heard, is coming. You have heard that if you have walked into a store any time in the last, uh, well, what, they probably put it up right after Halloween, I'm guessing. It's all pink and red and hearts. I have walked into a few stores and got the cards. I was proud this year, my older daughter um, for school decided that she didn't, she refused actually (laughs) to buy any um, commercially made Valentines to give away for her class. She said she wanted to make them all herself, which seems like a really lovely thing you'd be very proud of, except that she wanted to make pop-up cards, and it's complicated, okay? (laughs) But I think we're good. We're we're almost ready for Tuesday. (laughs) Here at the Ethical Society, for many years, we have taken the time around Valentine's Day to pause and spend a Sunday thinking about love. And our attempt every year is to think about love in a more expanded way than Hallmark wants us to. Although I will say that Hallmark now will sell you a Valentine's Day card for many people in your life. I mean, they have certainly gone beyond Valentine's Day as a purely romantic holiday, right? You can get Valentines for your, you know, your children and your parents and your cousins and like the teachers, and all the people that you love. So good job, I guess. Um, Hallmark, I'm not sure. Um, But here we have really sought to take that idea of um, the love that is celebrated on Valentine's Day and to expand it to think about how we love our family, our friends, even how we love humanity writ large. This year, as we examine the theme of identity through the month of February, I wanted to look at how we love ourselves, our full selves, and why sometimes that feels so hard. A couple of years ago, I think on Pay Attention to Love Day, I cited an article from the New York Times about the 36 questions that could make you fall in love. Some of you might remember that article. There was a project where you were sort of supposed to stare into, well, I guess it was an experiment that they really did, um, where you stare into someone's eyes for four minutes, which is a long time, FYI, and, um, and then you ask each other these 36 questions. And what the experiment showed was that a very high percentage of people who did that together, stared at each other and asked these particular questions and answered them and listened to the answers, a high percentage fell in love with each other. By the end, they experienced some sense of deep, soulful connection to the person um, that they were with. And um, actually, some of our small groups here at the Ethical Society chose to do that with each other, not, I think, with the goal of all falling in love with each other, um, but with the goal of understanding and knowing each other more deeply. That if these were questions that could help you fall in love with a romantic partner, were they also questions that could help you to fall in love with a friend, to know someone truly? 
And so, of course, I started wondering if those questions would work for ourselves. What could help us to fall in love with ourselves? There's that old song, um, you know, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, um, you know, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him, right? That's a song. That's a song. Okay, great. Thanks. That's a song. (laughs) It's good because it's been going through my head and I'm glad I didn't just make it up. Um, And I think that there is a real truth in that song, although perhaps it's the reverse or the opposite or or something like that, that in order to love someone, you must know them fully. You must ask those deep questions, stare into their eyes for an uncomfortably long period of time. You must know the fullness of who they are and love them anyway or because of it. And so what I wondered is how that applies to loving ourselves to understanding the fullness of who we are and whether we take the time to do that, whether we're brave enough to look ourselves in the eye for four minutes to ask ourselves the questions that would make us fall in love. There's a a story that I love from the rabbinical tradition, which, uh, which I have told before, I'm sure. It's one of those stories I keep coming back to because it speaks to one of the essential struggles of my own life, one of the challenges that I have. It's about a man named uh, Zuzia. Um, And Zuzia has tried hard to live an exemplary life. He has tried, in fact, to be like Moses, the paragon, um, the ideal. He has tried to make decisions the way Moses would have. He's tried to live up to this image uh, he had in his mind of Moses, this incredible figure and man. And, um, And so Zuzia has a dream one night that he has died, and he stands before God and waits for judgment, to see how he did in the work of his life to become as much like the wonderful Moses as he could. And God says, but Susia, it doesn't matter to me whether you were like Moses. What I want to know is, are you the best Susia you can be? Are you the best you? Have you lived yourself to its fullest potential? I said that this is a story that comes back to me uh, that speaks to one of the challenges of my life because I often find that, um, you know, I think I'm fine, it's okay, Um, but if I were just a little bit more like this other person, this other clergy person who I see speaking so eloquently from their amazing life experience, if only I could speak like that despite the fact that my life experience really has nothing to do with that, and I couldn't possibly tell this story authentically. But really, if I just could be a little more like that, a little more like that calm, meditative person, more like that, or maybe instead like that other really charismatic person who, who travels around with a guitar on his back all the time and just is ready to sing, if I only knew guitar, probably I would be like that person. <laughs> and wouldn't things go better then? <laughs> I saw a little saying that helped me. I was at a um, clergy retreat of ethical culture leaders, and um, 
most of the time, actually, those retreats really do, as you might expect, involve people sitting around and talking about philosophy. Um, but this time, we chose to do something different, and so we made vision boards. That was very different for us, actually. So we had all these beautiful images that someone had printed and cut out, and big poster boards, and um, you know, a lot of the images were from sort of internet images with with beautiful words and inspiring phrases, and and um, we were rubber cementing them all over our vision boards, creating our intention for ourselves in the year to come. And I saw this little this little tiny square of an image at a table over there, and I could just read the words. And it said, comparison is the thief of joy. Isn't that something? Comparison is the thief of joy. And I thought, that's what I need right in the center of my vision board to remind me to be Zuzia, the best Zuzia I can be, not Moses. The irony of this story is that as I was trying to get it, another leader picked it up first, and he put it on his vision board, making his vision board so much better than my vision board. (laughs) And then I couldn't even think that because I was supposed to be, you know, inhabiting this comparison as the thief of joy stuff, whatever, when I don't even know, obviously couldn't embrace that because it didn't end up on my vision board. Man... It was rough, you guys. It was rough. When I was in, uh, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Comparison is the thief of joy. When I was in Bismarck, North Dakota this past week, I spent a Friday to Friday with them, and so I was able to be with them on Sunday morning for their service. And a lay member of the congregation spoke, not the minister, um, She's doing a beautiful project in Bismarck called the Human Atlas of Bismarck. She's a photographer, and she's taking um, these really, um, the, the, the picture version of 36 questions, right? Pictures that really um, look into a person's full being and highlighting the diversity um, found in Bismarck. I will say, Bismarck is 90 to 95% white. Um, so her project is to try to pull out the reality of the diversity there, um, which is so often uh, unseen. And it's a beautiful project. Uh, she spoke really well about that project and about photography and what it meant to her, about the diversity that really was in the city, if you looked closely enough. But what struck me about her talk was the first part. She was telling her own story. And she talked about um, her struggle with um, a sense of perfection, her childhood and adolescence, wanting to be the perfect person. And in that hope, rejecting all the things about her that she found to be imperfect, her anger, her impatience, the things that were unappealing qualities about her, rejecting them, trying to put them away and fit herself into a little perfect box. She contrasted that with a picture of herself at the age of three, sort of fully alive and authentic, running among bubbles and about to have a temper tantrum. Her true self, the anger that she rejected later. And then she introduced us to the concept of maya. Maya is a Sanskrit word that means something like illusion. And she talked about the dance of maya, the illusion, the way that we seek to be something always that we are not, unable to fully 
embrace our own authenticity. And what a relief it was in her own life when she found a way to embrace authenticity, to embrace the fullness of herself, the anger and the impatience, the parts of her that were unappealing, when she found a way to acknowledge that they were indeed who she was. The staff here at West just took an Enneagram training. How how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram? Just a couple, yeah. So it's a personality tool. You know, like any tool, it's just a way of understanding yourself and others. And for some people, I I think it's really helpful. And for some people, it's not. There's nothing magic about it. But it it has nine personalities on a wheel. And... um, and you, you sort of learn about each one and then fit yourself somewhere. There are tests you can take online, but the thing that's interesting to me about the Enneagram model is that it's really intended as a um, self, you, you identify yourself. That is, the online tests that you take are to point you toward how you experience yourself, to help you articulate that more clearly. And ultimately, no one can tell you what number you are. No one can guess or assign a number. You identify yourself what you are. Of course, on staff, we had a good time still assigning each other numbers. You know, <laughs> I don't really think you're, you think you're a four. I don't know if you're a four. You're more like a seven to me. Um, but, but the idea behind the Enneagram is that you you read about these, um, these personalities and, in particular, about the challenges associated with each personality type, about what you struggle with. You look for the struggle that relates most to yourself, and you identify yourself there. And then, of course, there are ideas about how to understand yourself better, what might help you in that struggle, how to interact with others. It's an interesting way to go about it, to start with the challenge, to start with the struggle in our lives, and to see who we are more fully through that challenge. Eric, am I still mic'd here? I'm still mic'd, good, thanks. I found I couldn't identify myself on the Enneagram. (laughs) Lots of people have guesses. I asked my, my husband, um, thinking he probably knew me best, and he couldn't identify me either, so I'm not sure what that says. Um, so I'm still wondering. I'm still looking around. You can all send me your guesses now if you're familiar with the model, or just go online and take a test as though you were me. I'm sure that probably works. <laughs> Why, I wonder, is it so hard sometimes to see ourselves fully? All the parts of ourselves, the ones we don't like so much, the ones that we do, the ones we celebrate. It's wrapped up, I think, in our judgment about ourselves. Our society is so focused on the supposedly right ways of being, the boxes that it expects us to fit in, depending on our gender identity, our sexual orientation, our race, our ethnicity, our age. Society sets up what that ought to look like. And then when we don't look quite like that, tells us we're wrong somehow. It doesn't give us space often for the authentic, complicated, imperfect existence the many identities that we hold, 
impatient and angry. And perhaps because of that very hope to be perfect, to fit inside the box we imagine is made for us, we ironically miss out on the opportunity to really work on our challenges, our growing edges, because we are busy either ignoring them, pretending they don't exist, or imagining them to be insurmountable flaws on our character. A friend of mine, Kat Liu, who does organizing in California now, wrote, if I could go back in time and offer some advice to my younger self that would significantly reduce the amount of dukkha, which is suffering or pain in the Buddhist tradition, in my life, it would be this. First, do not worry about what other people think of you. The great majority of folks are not paying enough attention to judge you because they are too busy worrying about what other people think of them. I would call this the middle school phenomenon, right? (laughs) Of those who are judging you, some of it may be useful feedback to hear, but the majority of it is just them projecting the things that they don't like about themselves onto you. Second, go easy on judging others, because more than likely, it's you projecting the things you don't like about yourself onto them. So if we know we don't want to judge ourselves too harshly, just the way we don't want to judge others too harshly, because we know that rarely works, right? How do we want to treat ourselves? How do we want to treat our flawed, imperfect selves? Perhaps because of this essential challenge in my life, my desire to be either more like the guy who plays guitar despite my total inability to do so, or the person who meditates hours a day despite my total inability to do so. (laughs) Because of that challenge, I find that the people I admire most in life are the ones who are able to be most deeply authentic. The ones who know their selves, their flaws, their challenges, their beauty fully. Who inhabit the world in a way that shows how much they know who they are. (laughs) I've been inspired recently by many folks here, in fact, who have been able to be open and giving as they talk about their own vulnerability, their own challenges in life, who own the fullness, the complicated nature of their lives. Today, we'll have a chance during our West Talks to hear from Brian Pashigian, who is a mental health therapist, and he'll speak a little bit about um, mental health generally and um, uh, sort of both mental first aid, how to, how to be a responder, and also how to be aware of your own mental health and care for yourself. And we'll also, as part of that, get a chance to hear from Elizabeth Stevens. Elizabeth is uh, an inspiration of mine. She is active in NAMI um, and speaks about her own challenges with mental illness and embodies that experience, that identity in such a full way as part of the much larger and fabulous identity that she holds. Those are the folks who are Zuzia as best they can be. Now, why all this talk about loving oneself? Isn't this a little maybe pop psychology? What does it have to do with justice, with ethical culture, for that matter? 
the great prophet Dar Williams said, <laughs> yeah, someone else thinks she's a great prophet. I don't go to therapy to find out if I'm a freak. I go and find the one and only answer every week. And when I talk about therapy, I know what people think, that it only makes you selfish and in love with your shrink. But oh, how I loved everybody else when I finally got to talk so much about myself. The reality is that knowing ourselves fully, loving ourselves, acknowledging the full, complicated, imperfect nature of ourselves is fundamental to being present to others in the world, to being able to do justice, to live in right relationship, to work against systems of oppression, to work in beauty and care with the people most intimately connected in our lives. There are a few ways I think that love for self, knowledge of self, is so key in ethical culture. One of them has to do with one of our core principles, the worth of every person. Right? Ethical culture is founded on the idea that every person is worthy. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how much money they make or what their job is or whether they contribute to society one bit. They are worthy just by virtue of being human. The interesting thing over my years here is that I've found that people do pretty well being able to imagine that about others, to affirm the worth in others even when they don't quite see it, to know that that's a leap of faith that's asked of them by our tradition. But especially as people struggle with illness or aging as the things that they've been able to do before, the things that added value in their lives start to shift for them it becomes sometimes hard to remember the worth that we hold ourselves. When all of the things that used to define who we were shift, remembering and articulating our worth is even more vital. Knowing and loving ourselves. A common phrase around Wes and other ethical societies is um, that our goal is to elicit the best in others and therefore in ourselves. I love that phrase. Adler called it, Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, found it, uh, called it the supreme ethical rule. I actually find that like a little bit, it's a little bit creepy and sort of, you know, maybe that's a lot. That's a lot. Supreme is a lot, Adler. It was a good ethical rule. Um, but the, the idea behind it is that it offers more mutuality than, for instance, the articulation of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a beautiful sentiment and not a bad way to live your life, I will say, but which imagines that what I would want, you would want, right? The idea behind elicit the best in others and therefore in yourself is that we might want different things because we are, in fact, different people with different identities, different selves. And so my job is to figure out what your best is and to try to elicit it, but it's also to know what my best is, my potential. Who is Zuzia at Zuzia's best? That mutuality depends, I think, on self-love, on self-knowledge. 
It's not one size fits all, but rather about the potential of each living up to that potential fully. There's a quote I love that I will end with this morning from Marianne Williamson. It's in A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. And I have edited it for our context. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your plain small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Elicit the best in others and therefore in yourself. Or you do you and love it. <laughs>